Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at, a, at an event in Jesus' life and what it can teach us. Luke chapter 7, we're going to pick it up at the end of the chapter, which is in verse 36. So Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. And when you find your place there, I'm going to read to you this uh, end of the chapter, verses 36 through 50. If you haven't read this in some time, or maybe this is a new event to you, just listen carefully. Think about, picture in your mind's eye what's going on here. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees desired him, that's Jesus, that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said unto him, uh, by the way, you catch that, the man said within his own heart, he didn't say it out loud, but Jesus knows what the man is thinking. So Jesus answers him and says, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil that it's not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he saith to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. That's the story, the uh, event we're going to look at tonight. Let's pray and uh, then we'll consider and my sermon title tonight, Feasting on God's Forgiveness. Feasting on God's Forgiveness. Father, this story always touches my heart because we have the downtrodden, the cast off, the person who's considered of little worth, teaching us we often consider ourselves good people. We consider ourselves people of, of, uh, of goodness. This woman has something to teach us about ourselves and about forgiveness and about sin and about loving you. And I ask that the details of the story wouldn't obscure the lesson. I pray that the details of the story would lead us to the, the truth that's here and that we would see that those who are forgiven little, seemingly are forgiven little, love little, and those who know that they're forgiven much, they love much. 
and that love will drive our actions, our behavior, the way we treat you. Father, we are so grateful for the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus, that it's free, that it's available to all, that it's sufficient for all, that there's no sinner that comes to you whose sin debt is so big that you won't pay it, that you can't pay it. We're grateful to know that you are a forgiving and a merciful God even today. Even today, Lord, I've needed your mercy, and your mercies are new every morning. So I thank you for that, and I ask that you would lead our minds and our hearts and our spirits into the truth that's in this passage this evening, and prepare our hearts to remember the Lord's Supper and the sacrifice you made for us and the promise that you are coming again. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Holy Son. Amen. Uh, I want to start tonight's message by talking about why we eat too much during the holidays. Now, I don't know about you, but I almost always eat too much during the holidays. And I almost invariably tell myself, as I'm coming up on Thanksgiving, I say, you know what, I'm just not going to... I'm just not going to eat so much this year. And then there it is. And I eat too much at Thanksgiving, and I eat too much on Christmas Day, and I eat too much on New Year's Day. Why is that? I was thinking about this. The first reason that we eat too much, I'm convinced, is because we generally, on Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, New Year's, we're generally with people that we love and we enjoy being with. And I don't know about you, I'm focused on the people, not the food. I mean, the food's good too. But I'm not thinking, okay, I just put a, a mashed potatoes on my plate. That's 200 calories. And uh, I'm going to add some turkey. That I don't think that way, right? I just put food on my plate because I want to sit down because I want to talk. I want to I hear what went on in your life, or my, the loved one's lives. I, I just want, I'm enjoying the people. I'm enjoying the laughter. I'm enjoying the jokes. Sometimes there's tears. There's stories, reminisces about things that have happened in the past, and I'm getting so, I know I'm getting old. Here's how I know I get old. I say to my kids, you won't remember this, but let me tell you. I remember when my parents used to say that to me, like, okay, so what? I mean, what's the big deal? That is part of the reason you eat too much, because you're not focused on the food. You're focused on the fellowship with the people that you're around. And often, at least for me, these meals, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Day, they're some of the least hurried meals that I eat. Christmas Day, I thought about this, Christmas Day was the first time in I don't know how long that I was not at my own home, I was at someone else's house, and I did not leave all day. Now, I've come to your house, right? I'm just talking generally, but I don't stay at your house all day. Some of you are saying, praise the Lord. <laughs> But I don't. You know, I stay for a couple hours, two or three hours, and then I go, and sometimes it's only 30 minutes. Sometimes it's just at the door. Sometimes I call you on the phone. I don't even make it to your house because there's other pressing issues. But guess what? On Christmas Day, what would be more pressing? So I sat there the whole day, and what I found myself doing, I kept going back to the food, right? I kept going back to the dessert because I, what else is there to do? The second or the third reason that I've found I, I end up eating too much is because the food is so delicious. There are certain dishes that you and I only make around these holidays. Thanksgiving has its own set of dishes, and, 
and uh, Christmas has its own set of dishes. I don't know that anyone makes anything special on New Year's Day, but for some of us, that's the only time all year we're going to get a chance to eat, and then you can fill in the blank, whatever food that is. So there's a tendency to eat a lot. Um, we eat too much because there's so much variety. A, a typical meal at my house has some meat, right, and a starch and some green thing. I'm not making fun. I just don't like the green thing as much as I like the other parts. But maybe three, maybe a fourth item. But I don't know about your Christmas spread. Our Christmas spread must have had 20 different items. You know, each family bringing something and they, they contribute. They don't just contribute something. They contribute the best thing that they make. And so if you just take a little sample of everything, there's way too much food. In fact, they won't even fit on one plate. So I've learned to take a little bit of the things that I think I'm going to like the most, and then I can always go back and try the things later. But there's just way too much food, just so much variety. And we eat so much because there's not only a large variety of food, but there's large quantities of food. Especially if you have gotten together, as we did at Christmas time, with there was multiple families represented. Everybody brings what to them is enough for their family and a little bit more, and pretty soon you have enough for their, everyone's families and five or six more families. And so you dip into that bucket of mashed potatoes and you put a scoop of potatoes on your plate and it doesn't look like there's any potatoes gone. And everybody goes through and takes mashed potatoes and there's still a bunch of mashed potatoes left. There's mounds of meat. And you take a few pieces and it's like, I didn't even take any, I'll take another one, right? And especially if you go last, I don't encourage you to do this, you feel like you're trying, to, you're trying to clean up things, right? And you say, oh, there's just a little bit left, so you scoop that out and you put it on your plate, and pretty soon you need another plate. Well, there's another feast that we can have every day, and particularly today because we're observing the Lord's Supper. I want us to feast on God's forgiveness. Because God's forgiveness, there's always plenty. There's so much variety. It is a delightful thing to be forgiven. I don't want us to be in a hurry and I want, a fellow, I want us to fellowship with the God whom we love. This story here talks about loving God. Um, let me give you a few details about the setting so you understand a little bit better what's going on here. In Jesus' day, when someone would come into a house, usually the first thing that uh, would be done for them is someone would wash their feet. Now, sometimes it was the host or the, uh, the hostess, more likely the hostess, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, tells us that a widow should only be taken care of if she's done a certain, certain things. And one of them is if she has washed uh, the feet of the brethren. That wasn't because she'd done that as a special thing. That was just commonly accepted that when you went to someone's house, they were going to wash your feet. Now, again, to American minds, you know, if we take our shoes off, that's a big deal. But they wouldn't just take their shoes off. They would take any socks off. Of course, they would often wear sandals. And so they'd take their sandals off, and someone would wash their feet. And their feet would be dirty. That's why you wash people's feet. Their feet would be dirty because often they did have just sandals on, and they were walking on dirty, dusty roads. So washing a person's feet would be an expected treatment of, of a guest. And the second thing I want you to keep in mind about this meal we're going to uh, talk about is... Um, Folks would not sit at chairs when they ate in Jesus' day. They weren't sitting at chairs. They were literally reclining. They would lay down, and I, I thought about getting a table out, but I thought, this is going to be embarrassing to me. They would lay down, 
resting on their left elbow, their legs spread out to, behind them, and their elbow, their other hand here at the table so they could eat and talk. And that's why it says, let's see if I can find it quickly here, in verse 38, it says, stood at his feet behind him. This woman came in, she stood at Jesus' feet behind him, because he wasn't sitting. If he would have been sitting and she was at his feet, she'd be in front of him, but he wasn't sitting. He was reclining, his feet stretched out behind him, and she was back here at his feet behind him. That's why it says that. So keep that in mind as we tell this story. Jesus and the other people are there gathered at the table, their elbow, they're next to the table, their, their hand they're taking from the table, their feet stretched out behind them away from the table. She comes in and she begins, she begins to cry and wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wipe those tears away with her hair. She points, pours ointment, sweet-smelling ointment on his feet. She kisses his feet. That's the, uh, that's the picture we have here. This is the event that's going on. And to the Jewish reader, this particular event would be incredibly scandalous. Because the Bible tells us that this woman was a sinner. And that sinner is a euphemism for a woman who is a woman of the streets, a woman of the night, we would say, a harlot. This woman has been involved in all kinds of evil. And in, this is going to be a small town. This is not Jerusalem. This is a small town. She would be known to the town as that bad woman. You've got to stay away from her. She's a bad woman. And she had been sinful, just wicked, vile, done terrible things. But she comes in, when she hears that Jesus is at the Pharisee's house, she comes in. And I've wondered, I, I thought about it, I don't have an answer. If you have an answer, you let me know. How did she even get into the house? I mean, the Pharisee is not going to want that type of woman in his house, right? So I don't even know how she got him, but somehow she got in. And that alabaster box of ointment, think, think about this with me, that alabaster box of ointment was a way that she was would have been in her sinful life, she would have tried to be alluring. So by pouring this ointment out generously on Jesus' feet, you know what she's doing? She's saying, I give this up. I'm not going to go do this anymore. This sinful, wicked lifestyle I've lived, I'm done with that. And instead of using that ointment for sinful purposes, now she's using that sweet-smelling ointment to anoint Jesus' feet. Now the Pharisee sees what this woman is doing. She's washing Jesus' feet with her tears. She's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, I know enough. I, I've got a wife and three daughters, and they don't like to wipe things up with their hair. <laughs> I spilled milk all over my kitchen floor this afternoon. I still don't know how I knocked it over, but I knocked milk. My wife didn't get down on the floor and put her hair in the milk. I can tell you that much. She's wonderful. Cleaned it up for me. But not with her hair. Think about what that means, that this woman would wipe Jesus' dirty feet with her hair. She puts ointment on his feet, and then she kisses Jesus' feet. Now again, I don't know about you, I wouldn't wipe somebody's feet with my hair, and I certainly wouldn't kiss people's dirty feet. I wouldn't even kiss people's clean feet. And here's this woman, and she's crying and she's uh, bathing, washing, excuse me, that's the word I want, washing Jesus' feet. And while this touching scene is going on, 
the Pharisee in his heart is thinking, you know what? If Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't even let her touch him. Now, Jesus knew what the Pharisee was thinking in his heart. Jesus says two things in this, in this text here that show us his deity. Number one, he knows what's going on in people's hearts. By the way, he knows what's going on in the sinner's heart too, doesn't he? Which is why he allows us to even go on. Because what she is seeking is she is seeking forgiveness. She's repenting. She's decided, like I said, that alabaster box with the ointment, the sweet-smelling ointment in it, she's pouring it out on Jesus' feet. She's saying, I'm done with this. I'm not, I'm not going to go back to my old ways. She's not looking for some temporary uh, forgiveness so she can just go right back to doing evil. She's done. And Jesus knows what's in her heart. But he also knows what's in the Pharisee's heart. Second thing that Jesus does in this passage that reminds us that he's deity is he forgives people's sins. I can't forgive sins. Now, I can forgive you if you've offended me. I can say, you know, I forgive you. But that's not the same as forgiving sins. And that's why the Pharisees and these, the Pharisee and the other men that were at the meal were shocked. Verse 40, who, uh, verse 49, who is this that forgives sins also? What, who's this guy think he is to forgive sins? Who is it in this event who is it in this text, who is it in this passage that realizes from the beginning that Jesus can forgive her sins? It's the woman. That's why she's there. She realizes this is her chance to be forgiven. And then Jesus, in the middle of this, he tells us this parable. He tells us a story. He, he says it's a parable. He's, he's making this up. It's a, it's a made-up story, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And the parable goes something like this. There's two guys that owe money. One owes 500 pence. The other owns 50 pence. Owes 50 pence. And when they have nothing to pay, we're going to come back to that in a second. When they have nothing to pay, the creditor says, listen, I'm just going to cancel this debt. The creditor's name is Joe Biden. No, I'm just teasing. That's not, that's not in the story. So I just want to see if you're paying attention. You know, 50 pence, 500 pence, it really doesn't mean a whole lot to us. So I tried to put it in modern day terms based on purchasing power. Let's call the 50 pence, the 50 pence, let's call that about $15,000. Well, the other person owed 10 times that amount. Not 50 pence, 500 pence. So if 50 pence is $15,000, then 500 pence would be $150,000. So think about that in your own life. Could you pay off 15000 Yeah, maybe. You know, you're going to scrimp and you're going to save. And I mean, probably all of us, well, not all. There's probably a lot of us that owe at least $15,000 somewhere on a mortgage or something, right? But we're going to make it happen. The $150,000 in Jesus' day, that would have been... You, you, you'd have to, I don't know how you'd ever pay that off. And I think there's a reason he picked that. But it says specifically in verse 42, when they had nothing to pay. Look at that with me on verse 42. When they had nothing to pay. It's not that one guy had five pence and the other guy had 10 pence or, you know, one guy had 25 pence. He was getting pretty close and the other guy had, you know, 100 pence. No, they had nothing to pay. So the creditor, it says, frankly forgave. Now that word frankly forgave, great translation. It's one word in the Greek and it simply means he canceled it without any conditions. 
It's not that he said to these two people, okay, I'm going to cancel your debt, but you have to come work at my house one day a week. Or I'm going to cancel your debt, but if you get caught in trouble again, I'm going to you know, put it back on you. He didn't, he didn't say that. There's no probation here. There's no, you've got to jump through these hoops to get your debt forgiven. He said, it's done. You don't owe me anything. And then Jesus asked the question of Simon, who is the Pharisee in this story, in this event that happens. He says, which one will love him most? The one who is forgiven the $150,000 or the one who is forgiven $50,000? And Simon is not dumb. He says, well, of course, the person that that the creditor has forgiven the most is going to love him the most. And Jesus says, now look, here's this woman. You despise her. You think she's worth nothing. In fact, you think she's worse than nothing. She's a sinner. In your book, she's the lowest of the low in society. But when I came into your house, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a friendly kiss. But this woman has been washing my feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. She's been anointing, he said, you didn't anoint my head with oil, which would have been a nice gesture of friendship and respect, but this lady's pouring out this ointment on my feet. He's pointing out that this woman loves Jesus a lot. What is driving this woman's great love for Jesus? The great forgiveness that she's experienced. She realizes how wicked and vile and sinful she's been. She's not glossing it over. She recognizes this has been bad. But you know what she also realizes? That Jesus has completely forgiven her. The whole amount. Not half of it. Okay, you owe me 500 pence. I'll just drop it to 250. No, no. It's zero. But here's Simon's problem. Simon's problem is that he doesn't think he's been forgiven for much because he's not a very bad sinner. Now, I, I, this, this story about Simon always hits home with me because a lot of times that's our problem as churchgoers, as Christians. We don't think God's forgiven us for much. In fact, sometimes if we're not careful, we sort of think that maybe God owes us a little bit, right? Because, I mean, I give, I give in the offering. I, I give a whole bunch to the Nordstrom's and AAA Ministries. And I, I, I'm one of those guys that's here on Saturday morning to knock doors. Or I, I'm, I'm serving in the nursery. And I'm serving in, in the Sunday school. I, boy, look, God's getting something from me. Why doesn't he give me? I don't know about you. I can admit that sometimes that thought's crossed my mind. Not only do I not feel forgiven, I feel like maybe I'm the creditor and God owes me something. Heaven forbid. That's not the situation. The truth is, if Simon would have taken some time to think about it, he would have realized that God had forgiven him just as much as he had forgiven the woman. Because in God's economy, sin does not have a value. Now, I want to be frank. Sin, some sins have greater consequences than others in this life. I mean, it matters whether I lie to my son or whether I shoot my son. That's a big difference in the consequences. But as far as value before God, sin is sin. And breaking even one of God's laws 
offends a holy God. And I shouldn't look at one person and say, well, I'm not a sinner like them. No, no, I need to look at a holy God and say, how could you have mercy on me, a sinner? And this woman's actions in, in, in this passage here in Luke, they are driven by her love for Jesus. And why doesn't Simon do the things that Jesus mentioned? Give him a kiss, greet him with a kiss. Why doesn't he have his feet washed? Why doesn't he anoint his head with oil? Because frankly, Simon doesn't love much. Because Simon hasn't been forgiven much. There are four lessons I want to draw from this story. The first lesson is that God's forgiveness is available to everyone. God's forgiveness is available to everyone. Frankly, the Pharisee in the story, Simon in this, in this event here, he doesn't, he doesn't really think the sinner can be forgiven. I mean, maybe, maybe if she does a really, maybe she, maybe, I, I don't know, it, it's probably not going to happen. That's his thinking. I don't know about you, we can fall into that trap, can't we? Look at somebody who's done a lot of wickedness and think, wow, I don't know, could God forgive them? Yes, God can forgive anyone. Because forgiveness is not dependent upon how deep my sin is. Forgiveness is dependent on how merciful God is. And I think we miss this. We sort of think of God's mercy. We don't, we don't understand that for a holy God, mercy means a big deal. You know, I've, I've offended people and people have offended me. And sometimes I've gone to people and I've said, hey, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? They've been gracious. Yes, I forgive you. And sometimes people have come to me. Hey, pastor, would you forgive me? Yes, I, I forgive you. As human beings and peers, sometimes I'm the, one, I'm the sinner and sometimes they're the sinner. That's never the case with God, is it? Where has God ever been wrong? Where has God ever sinned? He hasn't. He's holy. So for him, forgiveness is on a different level than forgiveness for you and me. And yet, despite the holiness of God, he freely forgives everyone. It's available to all. The second truth from this story is that God's forgiveness is free to all. Notice in verse uh, 40 again, excuse me, in verse 42 again, it says, when they had nothing to pay. It isn't that both of them paid what they could and then the creditor forgave the rest. That's not what happens in this story. They had nothing. They had zero to pay. Now, sure, one person's debt was this much and the other person's debt was this much, but they both had nothing that they could pay. And in both cases, the creditor, out of the goodness of his heart, without any conditions, said, I forgive you. I cancel your debt. Isn't that what God's done for us? I don't bring anything to my salvation. I don't come to God and say, you know what, let me, t let me tell you some of the good things that I did and then you can meet me halfway. We don't meet God halfway. God comes to where we're at with nothing to offer him and he saves us. So God's forgiveness is available for all. God's forgiveness is free to all. And God's forgiveness is sufficient for all. When the creditor forgives both Excuse me, when the creditor forgives both of the debtors, he forgives the entirety of their debt. Again, he doesn't forgive part of it. Excuse me, here I'm going to take a quick drink. He doesn't forgive part of it. He forgives all of it. And he has, the, the, the creditor has the ability to forgive 500 pence. 
as easily as he forgives 50 pence. In fact, you remember the story of the unjust servant. In that case, he forgave talents worth of money. I mean, millions of dollars worth. And the man, the creditor said, hey, I'm just going to cancel this debt. There is no sin that you or I can do that is so bad that God can't forgive it. In the Jewish mind, what this woman had been doing, I mean, this was the worst of sins. I, we're not even sure if God can forgive that because they didn't understand the God they served. I'm, that was a misunderstanding. And Jesus is pointing out, she can also be forgiven because God's mercy is that rich. It extends that far. In Hebrews, we're told that God can save to the uttermost those that come unto God by Jesus Christ, by Him. God's forgiveness is sufficient for all. Here's the fourth lesson. Our love for God increases as we realize the depth of His forgiveness. And our love for God decreases when we think that we've been forgiven little. Look with me again at verse 47. Jesus is talking to Simon again. He says, Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Don't misunderstand the, the, the grammar there and think that she was forgiven because she loved. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying because she's been forgiven a lot, she loves. Not she loves, therefore she's forgiven. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying she has been forgiven a lot, so she loves a lot. Some people, Simon, have been forgiven a little, so they love a little. Let's unpack this for a second. Sometimes people might wonder, well, you know, if your forgiveness, if God's forgiveness, excuse me, if God's forgiveness is free, if you are forgiven and there is nothing that you need to pay, nothing you need to bring to your salvation, why serve God at all? Right? Why don't we just take his forgiveness and then run with it? And here's why. Because we who are truly forgiven love God a lot. And our behavior, our our obedience to God is not driven by this sense of debt that we have to repay. Our, our, our uh, actions, our obedience, that's the word I'm our obedience to God is driven by our love for Him. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. And those of you that have, that have and all of us have been there, but those of you who realize how, how deep, how far God had to reach down to pull you out of sin, you're the ones who love God the most. But the truth is, all, God had to reach down infinitely far to pull all of us out of sin. Some of us think to God, you know, he didn't really have to reach very far. Here, just grab my pinky. No, no. We were deep. We were mired in the muck. We weren't going to get out by ourselves. And God reached down infinite distance to a holy God to pull us up. And when we realize that, we love God a lot. And it drives how we treat Him. But when we think God has only forgiven us a little bit, when we feel pretty good about ourselves, I mean, hey, after all, you know, I haven't been like that person. I haven't done those things. I come to church and I give in the offering and boy, I serve and I teach this and I do that and I clean this and I, I'm here for that. And I'm the one who runs out and helps people when they're in trouble. If that's how I view myself, then you know what I feel? I don't need to love God. And that's where Simon was. He says, why do I need to love God? 
I'm a Pharisee. I keep the law. I'm not like this woman. And that's why when Jesus came to his house, he didn't wash his feet. He didn't anoint his head with oil. He didn't even greet him with a friendly kiss. Because in his mind, he and Jesus were peers. In fact, in his mind, he probably thought he was just a little bit better than Jesus. Jesus was a good man, but I'm just a little bit better. And unless Simon came to a place of repentance... He's suffering in the torments of hell today because any sin he had will take him to hell. And the woman, who in the Jewish mind was not going to ever get into God's presence, she's in the presence of God today, not because she was a good person, but because our God is a merciful God. Now sometimes when we talk about God's forgiveness when we talk about God's forgiveness, people misunderstand and, and they say, well, if God's forgiveness is limitless, if God's forgiveness is infinite, if God can forgive anything, then won't it lead people to try all kinds of wickedness and then just say, well, I'm going to ask God to forgive me. Let me read to you Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4 says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities... Oh, Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. When I comprehend God's mercy toward me, it doesn't lead me to be careless in my Christian living. It doesn't lead me to be selfish and sinful and say, well, God's going to forgive me. No, it leads me to love God and to obey him. Now, I've done a lot of stupid and harsh things, and my wife has been the recipient of some of those things. And there's been multiple times I've gone to my wife and I've said, sweetheart, you know, I said this, I did that, and it was harsh and it was cruel. Would you forgive me? And she has said, yes, I forgive you every time. And not one of those times that I say, oh, good, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> that, that doesn't cross my mind. Oh, she forgave me that time. Boy, let's try it at time number two. Because I love my wife. And when we realize how far God has reached down to take us out of the miry muck and to set our feet upon a rock and to, and to take us out of our sin and put us into His presence to grant to us His Holy Spirit, we love Him and we don't treat forgiveness as a light thing. Well, He's forgiven me before. I'll just try it again. No, no, no. We love him and we say, God, thank you so much for your forgiveness. I'm going to fear God. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mightest, that thou mayest be feared, the Bible says. A proper comprehension of God's forgiveness doesn't lead me to careless living. It leads me to love God and because I love God, to obey him. So going back now to these four lessons, God's forgiveness is available to all. Do you know that God has forgiven your sins? Because I'm convinced the scriptures teach us that there's no one in this room who cannot become a child of God. Now, I did not say everyone in this room is necessarily a child of God. Some may not be. But it won't be because God cannot forgive them. Do you know that God has forgiven you? Number two, do you recognize how free God's forgiveness is? I, I never want to motivate you 
to serve God because you owe him. Because the Bible doesn't ask us to serve God because we owe him. The Bible asks us to serve God because we love him. That's different. Do you realize that you, you're, not, you're not somehow paying God back for forgiving you when you serve him? God forgave us all without condition. Number three, do you recognize that God's forgiveness is sufficient for any sin that any one of us might have committed? There's some stuff that we have done, you and I, that we wouldn't want to talk about in church. It's heinous. It's terrible. And isn't God merciful to forgive us? Isn't God merciful not to keep bringing it back up to us? Remember that time I forgave you for? God doesn't do that, praise the Lord. And so, we ought to love God because He has forgiven all of us much. Now, I'll be frank, I candid. I, the younger folks in here, you're going to grow into that. At, at high school age, I didn't really understand God's forgiveness to the degree I do now. His forgiveness was the same. Don't, don't misunderstand me. His mercy has never changed. But in my little mind, I'm still struggling to understand how it all worked out. But I tell you what, the more I experience of life, the more times I, I have to go back to God and say, God, would you forgive me for that again? And God says, yes, I forgive you for that again. Boy, the more I love him, the more I see his infinite mercy as a treasure to be praised. God is not naive. He doesn't forgive us because he's naive. God knows exactly what goes on in my heart, your heart, everyone's hearts. And yet, despite knowing what's in my heart, he forgives me. That ought to drive us to love him. Do you need God's rich forgiveness tonight? Question number one. Question number two. Do you realize how far God's mercy reached to forgive you? Because the person who's been forgiven much, that person loves much. And the person who says, ah, yeah, God's forgiven me, but I really didn't do that much bad. That person doesn't love much. Father, thank you as we come to your ordinance that you set for us, this Lord's Supper. We, we come to recognize the incredible price that Jesus paid so that we could be forgiven. That he sacrificed his very body. He poured out his blood for our sins. We recognize that he rose again. He has victory over sin. He has victory over death. We're so grateful for that. And we want that forgiveness, your incredible mercy, we want that to motivate our love for you. We want that to drive our love for you. We want that, our love for you to increase because you have forgiven us so much. So we ask this evening, Father, that you would bless our time around the Lord's Supper you'd prepare our hearts that we'd examine ourselves, that where you show us unconfessed sin, we'd confess it, where we see your forgiveness in the sins we've already confessed, that we would rejoice in that forgiveness and not allow uh, our flesh or our adversary to weigh us down with guilt. May we have that sense that we are forgiven, not because we're good people, but we're forgiven because you're a merciful and a great God. May we put our faith in that. We ask for this help as we come to this Lord's Supper and we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Caleb's going to lead us in a song, Lead Me to Calvary, which is 111 in your hymn book. And uh, I mentioned it in my prayer. Let, let me encourage you, standing with me if you would, to take some time. We're going to sing as we sing. And then again, as we pass the elements, to examine your own heart and ask God to reveal to you any sin that might be there. If there's sin there and it's not been confessed, just confess it. Admit to God. He's right. You're wrong. If you find confessed sin there, that is, yeah, you did wrong, but you know you confessed it. Rejoice in God's forgiveness. He doesn't need you to confess it over and over and over. One time, and then God's forgiven. And let's be grateful for that.